and welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is the 135th and the last one in May. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been another busy week in the village where we have yet another set of temporary traffic lights, only in a different place this time, filling in a different series of potholes. It's definitely bad here, but I think the place I've seen with the most potholes has to be Rothsay Avenue in St. John, Canada, although maybe it's improved by now. It's been one of those podcasts that's taken a while to put together because of microphone issues and also dog interruptions. Anyway, we have yet another holiday coming up here in the UK on Monday, and it's also a day off in the US for Memorial Day. Today, however, is May the 26th, and that's the day in 1897 when Dracula was first published, although not as an autographed pre-order on Amazon. And also it's the day in 1923 when the first Le Mans 24-hour car race was held. Today is also the anniversary of the EU flag, and it's the day that Sgt. Pepper came out in 1967. It's also the birthday of John Wayne, Miles Davis, and one that really got me thinking was it's the birthday of Stevie Nicks from Fleetwood Mac, and British politician Jeremy Corbyn. And I was quite stunned to find out that he's a year younger than she is. I would have sworn he's 10 years older. I mean, when did Stevie Nicks get to be 73? Speaking of old things, we found some fossils on our walk this week, and I'll refrain from making any jokes about old musicians. There's nothing really spectacular, no dinosaur bones or anything, just some small marine creatures. Still very cool, especially to find something older than me. I also had a trip into Glasgow on Friday to pick up a car for my wife. I do really enjoy urban walking in spite of the rain. Of course, we had to take the car back again because of a problem with the seat. So I get to do the whole trip again when it's fixed next week. It was a bit sad to see the first two stops on the train to get there. No one was wearing a mask. But from the third stop right through to the 16th, everyone that got on was wearing one. I was also a bit disappointed to find that more than half of the vaccination appointments in Glasgow this past weekend were no-shows. Maybe if they offered free beer. Anyway, who are the guests on the show this week? Well, we have five, although only in three interviews. We chatted with Matt Wilkinson, Vice President, Technology and Business Development at Great Lakes Cheese, and Misty Mayo, President and CEO of the Development Corporation of Abilene. We also chatted with Karen Hansen-Kuhn, Program Director at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, and we welcomed back John Talbot, CEO of the California Milk Advisory Board, and Fred Schonenberg, founder of VentureFuel. After talking about all kinds of things like minor league baseball and crazy mascots, we actually did an interview as well. I did learn one thing, and that was the Santa Cruz banana slugs. So check that one out online if you can. And over here in Scotland, we have the truly terrifying Kingsley, who is the mascot of Partick Thistle Football Club. Going off on a tangent again, but I really do love some of the minor league baseball names, like the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. The Fort Wayne Tin Caps, the Amarillo Sod Poodles, the Binghamton Rumble Ponies, but I think my favourite weird name is a new team, and that's the Rocket City Trash Pandas. I'm sure I could look up the origin of the name, but I might be disappointed. Long-time listeners do know that I get sidetracked. Either that or they just fast forward. I'll try to stick to the script with the news. Tetra Pak is calling for more women in the food and beverage manufacturing industry. 
U.S. company Organic Valley wants to be carbon neutral by 2050, and 15 Wisconsin dairy companies have received 2021 dairy processor grants. Sinlay updated its financial year 2021 guidance, and Ineos and Lactel have partnered on HDPE milk bottles from Advanced Recycling. We had two from Friesland Campina this week. It sold its Russian dairy business, and Friesland Campina Ingredients has introduced a new vegan whipping agent. A new study found no link between drinking milk and increased cholesterol. Ketone is seeing strong Walmart sales in China. Taco Bell launched a second beverage containing dairy through the Chekhov support program. And as you may have heard in an interview on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Kerry-made vegan slices have launched for food service. Nestle Indonesia is looking to dairy development as construction of a new plant starts, and you can read all of these and plenty more at dairyreporter.com. So let's get to this week's guests. Great Lakes Cheese and the Development Corporation of Abilene in Texas have marked the official groundbreaking of a 286,500 square foot cheese packaging and distribution plant that's expected to employ around 500 people in the Abilene area. To tell us about the project from the company is Matt Wilkinson, Vice President, Technology and Business Development at Great Lakes Cheese, and from the perspective of what it means to the community is Misty Mayo, President and CEO of the Development Corporation of Abilene. I wonder if you could kind of give me a few details on what the new plant is and what it's designed to do. So Great Lakes Cheese has four facilities that really work on cheese packaging and distribution as their primary function. So this one will be the fifth of those primarily focused cheese packaging and cheese distribution facilities. So when we talk about cheese packaging, what we mean is we're taking large blocks of cheese in and we're cutting them down to all different uh, sizes. A lot of folks would call it a cut and wrap facility. So essentially take large pieces of cheese, cut them down to smaller retail or food service size pieces of cheese, and then we distribute them out nationally across the country from this facility. So it it will join the the rest of the GLC facilities in that primary mission, which is GLC's primary business is cheese packaging. And where are the other locations around the country? Sure, the other facilities, we have eight other facilities in total. So Abilene will be our ninth facility, but the other facilities, we have three that are in Wisconsin. We have two that are in New York State. We have one in Utah, one in Tennessee, and then one manufacturing facility in Ohio, and our head office facility is also in Ohio. So what's the geographical significance of having something in Texas in terms of your strategy? Well, as I mentioned, where the other facilities are located, so with the three in Wisconsin, two cheese manufacturing, so that's milk to cheese facilities in New York. The one out in Utah, which is primary purpose, as you would expect, is to help service the West Coast. Uh, The facility in Tennessee is the closest that we have to the southern and southeastern markets in the U.S. So the facility in Texas, it's really its purpose is to help us improve the service levels that we have to our customers that are further down into the southern and southeastern regions of the U.S. So it's really primarily a logistical perspective and customer service perspective. That's what it's there for. And that southwest region is pretty huge and Texas itself is pretty huge. So what was it about Abilene that drew you to that specific? Yeah, you know, we really just liked Misty and her team. That was all it took. You know? so, so what it really was is uh, we had been looking for a little while at where the next facility or an expansion should be. So we were looking at the facility we already have in Tennessee as a potential expansion. 
and from some of the logistical analysis and other areas that we had taken a look at, especially again, customer service focused, we started to take a look a little broader search radius than just expanding Tennessee. So from our own company's perspective, as far as where we needed cheese to be to provide the best service levels that we could to customers, it was pointing toward that Texas region. So we reached out to various folks in Texas and did a, a site search across many facilities. So there were dozens, literally dozens of site submissions that were made to us within Texas. At the end, it really came down to two cities, which are both out that western side of Dallas. In the end, pretty close between the two of them. And then we ended up selecting Abilene as our preferred site. From there, we worked with Misty and her team, who are obviously the economic development team from within Abilene and then also the governor of Texas's office, his economic development team, which convinced us that it was the best decision for GLC and really, again, for GLC's customers to provide the best service levels would be out of that location. So the decision was made and pretty soon the rest of it will be history. You, you have a an employee ownership kind of policy. How does that work? Sure. So GLC is 80% owned by the Eprecht family, who are the original founders of Great Lakes Cheese and 20% in an ESOP or an employee stock ownership plan. So every employee of Great Lakes Cheese, after a certain period of time, of course, but every employee at Great Lakes Cheese is also an employee owner of the company. So part of the philosophy behind that is with people owning a part of the company, they feel the responsibility and the ownership for every action and every decision that they make. So part of what we're looking to do is by having people also have a stake in the company that they're working for, that it helps to drive the decision making that we really look for. So make decisions quickly, drive change throughout your facility or whatever level of the organization you may be working with. And the, the ESOP and the stock ownership with employees, the way it is really has driven the type of culture and the expectations that the company has. It's worked out very well. We plan to keep that going. And certainly all of the employees in Texas as we bring them on will also be employee owners along with the rest of the company. But it's really just a cultural and philosophical core component really of Great Lakes Cheese. It's part of what makes it what it is, is that employee ownership aspect. Mm, that's excellent. 50 years ago when a new facility was being made, there wasn't really a lot of ability to do anything environmentally with having a new facility being constructed there. What are you able to do in terms of sustainability and making it an environmentally friendly building? Sure. So there are many components that I'm almost going to say they're standard in the designs of how our buildings work. So as you would expect, they're essentially giant refrigerators. So the whole building almost is fully refrigerated. So all of our wall materials are all heavily insulated to ensure that we minimize any sort of loss of power outside. Uh, we do as much as we possibly can to recycle water. So we have a general philosophy that any water that comes into the building has to be used again at least once. So we're recycling and recirculating a lot of water throughout the facility. All of the final designs and component selection of things like the refrigeration um, are not selected for this facility yet. But as a company, general types of philosophies we would look at is, for example, one might choose a self-contained Freon HVAC unit or refrigeration unit versus using an ammonia system that consumes a lot of water. So we would be taking a look at these different types of technologies as we go into the fine detail of the building design to really try and minimize the impact that we have on the environment. Not that it's part of the design now, but in a location like Texas, we would also be looking at things like, is there opportunities to utilize a little solar power um, or wind power is also pretty big down there. So we are looking for renewable energy type angles that we can take, and not just in Texas, but across the whole company really. 
but it is certainly becoming far more prevalent out there. But again, as a company, GLC is looking to try and get ahead of the curve in implementing more sustainable and environmentally friendly type capabilities within the facility, regardless of whether it's energy, power, gas, even the films and the products are running inside the facility. It is becoming a big driver for us. And certainly we expect in the next few years, our customers will be mandating that type of thing. So as we build new facilities, we're looking to really get ahead of that curve. Is that a big deal for the companies that you have in in that region, Misty, the environmental aspect? Well, Jim, I think anymore in manufacturing, it's a big deal for all companies. I think it's the reality of the direction of the industry. So I would say yes. I've seen some technologies being implemented in Abilene that are a little ahead of the curve with, you know, to Matt's point with renewables, particularly wind energy is huge in Abilene in our region. So I think the marriage of that with the manufacturing industry is certainly a great opportunity. As it's a packaging facility, where does the cheese come from? Is there any um, sustainability cost to bringing the cheese to the region? A good portion of the cheese that's going to come into this facility will come from northwest Texas or from northeast New Mexico. So anyone out there in the cheese industry in the U.S. at least can probably figure out what that means. But the if we just take that as the generic origin of a lot of the bulk volume that comes into the facility, and go back to your first question on where our facilities are currently located. Actually, for us, having the facility down there in Texas is, from a transportation perspective, going to result in less highway miles for the product that we're sending out there. So sustainability and environmental friendliness, it is better to be right there where it would be in Abilene than it would be to perhaps haul cheese from Wisconsin or haul it from Tennessee. So the the distance will be shortened. And again, what that results in is fewer miles traveled on the highway, so less gasoline or diesel consumption in these trucks, less time that it has to spend in the trailer where it has to be refrigerated, especially in that type of climate in the summertime. So from a customer service perspective with shorter distances, from a quality perspective with spending less time in the trailer, these things really contribute to that overall position, logistically being a good one for us. And certainly, as you're pointing out, on the sustainability and environmental side, it helps everyone out by spending less on fuel and less carbon into the air by running those trucks out there, both in and outbound. So that is actually one of the major considerations for why the facility is where it is, is based on the logistics of both inbound supply and where the outbound customer destination will be. And really, from that point, Jim, you know, Abilene's strategically located. We're just two and a half hours west of Dallas-Fort Worth area, and we have a major U.S. interstate that runs through the northern part of Abilene. So we really are a logistics hub and serve not only the dairy industry, but a number of industries very well from that perspective. And what does it mean for your community to have this in the area? Well, it's an enormous impact. When we look at the direct and indirect economic impact We're talking about over a billion dollar impact in the next 10 years. You know, of course, that's considering everything from wages to taxes to investment by the company. You know, it's the total package. And if one billion dollars is not impressive enough because it's a quite impressive number, what is impressive is the culture fit. GLC brings a culture to Abilene that marries kind of a fundamental culture that our community possesses. 
We're a more conservative, dedicated community that really believes in hard work and the payoff, kind of the fruition of what that hard work results in. And hearing from GLC, their commitment to their employees, their employee ownership program, their real views about hard work and the value of that, it's a perfect fit for Abilene and GLC to go into this venture together. Obviously, there's creation of jobs. Will it mean local jobs as well? Or will will there be some necessity to bring GLC employees from outside of the area? Matt may want to touch on this as well. But what we're hearing from the company is that commitment to the local community. You know, the desire to hire folks from Abilene, from this region, because truly Abilene is a regional hub. But hiring folks from this region and from Abilene that can even have opportunities for the future training, maybe future positions with the company. You know, they're obviously going to need some folks that know the GLC culture and can impart that and bring that to the community. Matt? You're on the first question there as well, just around the economic impact for the area. One of the just a quick throwaway comment there, I would add, is that when GLC moves into a community like this, a new community in Abilene, we do look to try and support the local area as close as we can first. So we're not looking to bring in all kinds of different things from outside and just happen to stick them there in Abilene. But when we're bringing up a business that's down there, we would look to try and utilize local businesses within Abilene for all kinds of services as much as we possibly can first. So we're looking to become part of that local community and to be seen as being part of that community. And so that does mean whatever the services may be, the cleaner or the gases or whatever it is, we will try and find a local to do these things for us first. And only after we exhaust those local opportunities would we expand out from there. So when we, again, it's not just Abilene, but with any facility that we would acquire or move into, then we look to support the local community as a major driver of the company's, again, community and cultural involvement that's out there. And to get to the local employee question, which is kind of tied together to the first, certainly we do look to hire the very vast majority of the employees locally. But as Misty had already said there, a couple of the key positions, especially to get a facility going, we would bring some GLC folks in from other facilities to help get it up on its feet. During that startup period, once the plant starts to run, we would at least temporarily bring other folks in. So they may not move to Abilene, they may not take that permanent position, but as we hire the Abilenians to take these certain positions or all the surrounding area, as you alluded to, if they had to move in um, from another area, but certainly within Texas and move to live in Abilene, then we would have folks come in to help them learn the ropes, help them learn the way that we want things running within the company. Maybe they stay for six months, whatever it may be and then they move back out to the facility that they had originated from. But in general, the philosophy is to try and hire as many folks locally as we possibly can, not to bring folks from all over the US and move them down to the new facility. So that is, again, part of that community involvement and strategy is to hire local. And I would assume as well that having a company like yours move into a community, there's a bit of a domino effect that it could also attract other businesses of of a similar quality and size so that the community can grow. Absolutely. And, you know, there are certain industries that really thrive on what we call the clustering effect. So it may not necessarily be the dairy industry, but perhaps it is something like one of the many food manufacturers that we have in Abilene. That also helps us grow our talent base from an employee standpoint. 
We have several food-related manufacturers in Abilene that, that are here and existing, and Matt's right. We love that idea because it's certainly the domino effect, as you say, Jim, certainly helps everyone, everyone prosper. It's funny, before the interview started, we were chatting about distances as Abilene is considered close to Dallas, even though it's about a three-hour drive. In Europe, a three-hour drive isn't considered close, but then North America's a big continent, so three hours is practically next-door neighbours, something of an alien concept to many Europeans. After all, you can drive from the Belgian border through Luxembourg, France and Germany into Switzerland, and it takes about four hours, which wouldn't qualify as close. Anyway, that's enough geography for one day. Let's get on to our next subject, and that's the USMCA trade deal, where there's been a bit of an argument between the US and Canada on dairy. While there are some organizations urging the US government to take the fight to Canada, others have a bit of a different approach. To tell us what's gone on so far and what some of the other potential solutions are, from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy is Program Director Karen Hansen-Kuhn. Please bear in mind that this was recorded two days ago, and yesterday the U.S. said it will be establishing a dispute panel about the issue. But according to the IATP, the opposition continues, and they still hope to get the argument dropped. So the contents of the interview are still relevant. It's a story that isn't a static one, so I wonder if you could fill me in on the the background and where we're at currently. Sure. I mean, I would say on this story, there's sort of two levels to it. On the formal level, what's happened with the disputes, as you mentioned, there have been disputes about dairy access, U.S. access to Canadian markets for decades. Canada protects its market because it has a supply management system for dairy. So they ensure fair price to farmers and they limit supplies. The U.S., on the other hand, has massive production. That industry wants to export. And so there was a small market opening under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. And towards the end of the Trump administration, the U.S. alleged that Canada was not correctly fulfilling those obligations, that they hadn't allocated properly what are called tariff rate quotas, a special window for tariffs entering in. Canada says they're not doing anything wrong. So there has been a lot of debate lately about whether the new USTR, the new U.S. Trade Representative, Catherine Tai, might just let this go, or if they will continue the debate. And last week, there was the first meeting of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Commission to go over different disputes. And We don't know a lot about what happened in the meeting other than that Ty spoke with her Canadian counterpart, Mary Ng, the day before the meeting, and they agreed to keep talking. So that's, you know, on a formal level what we know. This dispute has been happening. I think what's maybe more interesting is sort of the informal level. Like, for a long time, the story, at least in the U.S., has been that supply management is an inefficient system and that you know, dismantling it in Canada, opening things to market forces would be better for everybody. But when it emerged during the the negotiations for the USMCA that the Trump administration wanted to essentially help to dismantle Canada's dairy supply management system, there started to be a lot of re-examination among family farm groups in the U.S., So particularly, I would say the National Family Farm Coalition and the National Farmers Union, led by Wisconsin Farmers Union, which has a lot of dairy production, 
started to invite their Canadian counterparts to hear about their system. Family farmers, especially dairy farmers in the U.S., have had a really rough time for the last 20 years. I was just looking at USDA data that said we have lost more than half of the family, the small size dairy farms in the United States. There are half as many dairy establishments as there were in 2003. So there has been a process of consolidation of the industry leading to larger herd size, more industrial size style production. So when Wisconsin Farmers Union started really looking at this, they brought their Canadian counterparts to talk to other people. And there started to be more of a debate in the United States about not that we should duplicate the Canadian system, but there might be things we could learn from that. And then I guess another piece that's interesting in this debate that's happening now, it's the farmers, but it's also dairy process workers. The United Food and Commercial Workers Union and the Teamsters Union have both come to support basically just letting the Canadian system be and the position that we should be learning from the supply management experience in Canada. Now, part of this is that those unions also have members in Canada at dairy processing firms. So they're interested in maintaining jobs on both sides of the border. I think the other fact I hear everybody on this side cite quite a bit is that Canada is big geographically, but it's actually a much smaller economy than the United States. And the entire dairy market is smaller than what Wisconsin produces. So what I hear a lot of people say is even if the whole market were opened up, which really isn't on the table, it wouldn't make a difference to dairy prices in the United States and dairy production. So again, it makes it easier to say, let's learn from this experience. Let's let it happen. Uh, let's not challenge what's happening in Canada. Now, of course, there are other perspectives. The firms that have been exporting want to continue to export, want to open up those markets. But I think it has sparked a really new conversation in the U.S., one we haven't had for a while, that I think is also helped by the fact that the Biden administration is reconsidering what they want their trade policy to be. A lot of things are kind of on hold during that reconsideration. So I think this is one of the things where there's an opening both to talk about the specific trade dispute, but also sort of the issues that underlie it, like how do we get to the kind of production we want in this country and, you know, something that might be kind of new for the U.S. How do we learn from other countries rather than telling them what they should be doing? And I think another aspect to what you were mentioning about the dynamic of Canada is that the population of Canada is less than the population of, say, California. It's the second biggest country in the world, but population wise, it's not really that big. It's not. And under the USMCA, Canada opened up about 3.6% of its dairy market. It also opened up a little more under the Trans-Pacific Partnership and CETA, the agreement with the European Union. But altogether, the opening is 9% of what is already a pretty small number, as you say. So it seems like, to me, like kind of a no-brainer. It's not ruining their program. It's not going to fix anything here. 
And another aspect of this is the fact that about 90% of the Canadian population live within 150 miles of the U.S. border. And of course, it's a bit different now that we have the pandemic. But pre-pandemic, many Canadians did their shopping in the U.S., which would obviously include cheese. That's true. I mean, the economies are pretty integrated. And you're right. There is a lot of cross-border traffic. In the grand scheme of things, what do you think can be learned from the Canadian position and why is it so important to drop the action? Well, I think it's important to drop, as I said, so we don't continue to put pressure on what is a system that has been eroded a bit. You know, we have a farm bill coming up in the next couple of years. Or one factor, I think, that has come up in this discussion is this new I think coalition is too strong a word, but understanding between family farm groups and labor unions who are now interested in finding a way to bring supply management into the farm bill to make it more a part of U.S. policy. And so that means we need to learn from what's happened in Canada. What I hear from my Canadian counterparts is their system isn't perfect. There are things they might change about it. We should learn that as well. But they have decades of experience now estimating what the market needs are, what supply is needed for the Canadian population, and balancing that with a price that's reasonable to keep farmers on the land. That is something we could learn from. My guess is in the U.S. it would have to be adapted regionally, you know, because production varies so much. But certainly there are lessons there. There's experiences we could be gaining from And I've talked to different organizations that are thinking about introducing what we call marker bills, like a a bill on supply management, just to generate a conversation now in the lead up to the farm bill in a couple of years. So I think right now, what we're hoping is that this dispute with Canada just goes away, that we don't hear about it. I mean, I think there will be other trade issues we'll certainly be hearing about between the three countries, but maybe this one is just on hold. You know, we get a little more experience. And in the meantime, these groups that have started to come together, refine, you know, their positions, put forward ideas to generate more debate about how we manage our supply and what we think about that production. I mean, I think another aspect that came out when we were talking to people in Canada about this is the climate angle. Canada has a much smaller average herd size than the United States. Canadian statistics say the average is 93, whereas in the U.S. it's hundreds or even thousands on average now because of this consolidation. When you have a smaller herd, there's more of a possibility for grazing, more of a possibility for soil carbon sequestration, lower emissions. You don't have the kind of concentrated operations that tend to generate a lot of methane and manure. So I think there are lessons there, too, about if we had more decentralized production, you know, that was for local communities, it would have climate benefits as well. And that's something I think we weren't really talking about. Well, we weren't talking about much during the Trump administration. Now I think there's a lot of opening, you know, to reconsider how we meet the climate crisis. And there's certainly a very vocal dairy lobby in parts of the U.S. dairy industry. Are there any differences in position and what the different challenges are that farmers have compared with processors? Well, certainly, you know, for the processors, it's in their interest to keep prices low and to have a big supply. And they have these supply chains built up that are geared towards export. They're geared towards overproduction. So what I see 
in different statements that industry has made is, you know, a desire to maintain the current system and to, you know, build on that market opening, even though it's a small opening. I think their own statistics estimated uh, that it could amount to $280 million. It's not a big market. Even they acknowledge it's not big. So they do have somewhat different interests. On the other hand, I think it's really interesting that the unions, the workers at those dairy processing plants, have come out pretty strongly to say, we need to reconsider this. You know, they're seeing linkages between their work and those of farmers and their interests. So I think that changes the dynamic a bit to have these unions come in in a way that they really haven't in the past. So are there any actions that could be taken with regards to the trade dispute that could move this forward? Well, the funny part for us is that it would be a win if we just don't hear anything more about this, right? It'll be hard to know if it's really over. But if the U.S. does not proceed with putting pressure on Canada, that would be a win. And then I think the next steps that really need to happen is we need to find ways now that the farm groups in U.S. and Canada and the unions in U.S. and Canada have been talking to each other. We need to bring that conversation more to policymakers, you know, as we're thinking about what U.S. farm policy is. What have we learned from that Canadian experience? What could apply here? What might be different? And so I think that is a next step for us to see what the openings are. And again, not to say we replicate what they're doing, but I think there really are lessons there. And there are many different cooperatives, dairy groups, unions, all involved with the dairy industry in the U.S. Is there a consensus on what should happen and the approach to this, or is it fragmented? I'm not sure you can say there's consensus on anything in the United States right now, right? We're a pretty divided country. This doesn't reach the kind of polarization that we see on a lot of other issues. There are different interests, and I think that's fair. As I said, the interests of groups that have been relying on this model of low prices and overproduction, and they'd like to see that continue. I think certainly those groups are still there. They have that position. What I think is important now is that the other side that's saying, wait, let's step back. Let's think about if we could do this differently. And where can we learn, you know, about experiences? It might be not just Canada. Maybe we should be looking at other places too. What can we learn from what they're doing and push that into This new moment in the U.S. where a lot of things that would have been considered outlandish two or three years ago are now on the table. I think consensus is too much to hope for, but I think there are new connections that didn't exist before that I think will move us forward. Do you think that that polarization creates more issues? Because it seems that there's not just that division and polarization, but that it's more entrenched than it ever was and that people on both sides of that divide don't seem to be able to even communicate very well? It's a hard question. I will say some of this is about encouraging just conversations among real people. At my organization, over several years, we sponsored some dialogues, rural climate dialogues in different towns in Minnesota, where we brought people from a whole range of perspectives together to talk about climate change. Now, you know, the story you hear in the news is people can't talk to each other about that in rural areas, that people are entrenched. But what we found was if we could bring people together in a structured conversation, a lot of the issues that came up were not exactly what we expected. Sometimes at first, people were mostly concerned about stable energy supplies, 
And then that then led us to other conversations. So I think having these conversations will help to build bridges. I think the polarization that exists not just in the United States, but in many countries is real. But I am hopeful that in this case, you can see a real economic benefit to farmers. All farmers would love to have stable prices that cover their costs of production. And, you know, if we bring in consumers, perhaps, Canadian consumers aren't really paying more for their milk, just a little bit more than in the United States. So it's a fair price. Anyway, that is my hope that we can continue those kinds of dialogues you know, around what are fundamental issues for farmers. I mean, getting a fair price shouldn't be a polarizing issue, right? So perhaps that leads us forward. Anyway, I hope, as I said, that we can start to have conversations on this and many other issues. My hope is also, you know, as we start to emerge from the worst of the pandemic, you know, that at least in this country, that it will help people to sort of take a step back and think about how to move forward. Conversations that we can have that bring us together. That's my hope. And what's the IATP's role in all of this? Well, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy is... We're a research institute. So when we're working, say, with the farm groups, you know, we will explain to them how the trade rules are working, you know, what the details are. We can, in this recent round, we were finding out details on emissions production involved in dairy in Canada and the United States. So we are, you know, trying to help be supportive of these initiatives moving forward with research and other information. And then also, we are a very consciously internationalist organization, so we're always looking for those examples in other countries, both positive and negative. Now is to some repeat guests who I'm always glad to chat with, even though it takes a while to actually get to the interview, but it's good to catch up and talk about other things. The California Milk Advisory Board is bringing back its annual dairy innovation competition with a new name and increased focus on functional dairy product development. The Real California Milk Accelerator, the third edition of the CMAB competition that partners with innovation consultancy VentureFuel, will award up to $650,000 in prizes for new dairy products that support performance and recovery benefits. To tell us all about it are John Talbot, CEO of the California Milk Advisory Board, and Fred Schonenberg, founder of VentureFuel, who you will hear from first. Well, after my first question, that is. All right, this year's event has a new name. It's called the Accelerator. I wonder if you could tell me a bit about that. You know, we were, we were thinking about, could we create a name that could last over several years. This is our third year of the program, and we were trying to think of something that would be a great umbrella name and, and talk to the excellent products that we've been developing and then work across different future focus areas. And I, I took six years of Latin, uh, and I've never used it as far as I know. And all of a sudden, I remembered the word excelsior, which translates to ever upward. And that sort of just felt right. Not only you know, it sounded like excellence, which is something we're very focused on. This idea of always moving forward, moving up the value chain for consumers and trying to find products that were interesting, that were premium, uh, that obviously drove demand for California dairy. We put Excelsior and, and the idea of accelerating together and created the Real California Milk Accelerator. I might add too, this year's program is all about performance and recovery and that idea of excelling in whatever you're doing also seemed to 
play really well and uh, give us some nice reason for this name. Also, the connotation of athletics and recovery, you've got acceleration as well. So it has that to it as well, I guess. Yeah. And I think what's interesting, too, is this year when we were thinking of performance and recovery, it certainly can be for you know elite athletes, but more so we were thinking about human optimization, right? Everybody, especially coming out of the pandemic, wants to be healthier. You want to focus more on your job. You want to be more present. You want to sleep better, uh, as well as thinking through you know your digestion and this new movement towards functional foods. It's a gigantic market. And the thought was, could we tap into dairy, right? It's a sort of original superfood and find products that could help people optimize their life, whether that is performance or on the recovery side. And other than the name change, are there any other significant differences to the last event? <laughs> yeah, lots. Again, the history of this started out a couple years ago just focused on milk and really fluid milk products and last year we went into snacking which opened up the doors to a lot of different kinds of products and this year with this idea of more performance orientation takes it out of the you know natural food and beverage orientation around taste into something that has little different kinds of benefits, as Fred was saying. So that's probably the biggest difference. But structurally, there are a lot of other changes that we've done as well. And Fred, maybe describe the the boot camp and some of the other mentor-type programs that we've got planned. Yeah, it's been really exciting to watch this grow over the past couple of years. And we're getting so many different types of applicants. And we noticed sort of there was this group that was really early stage, that maybe had just an unbelievably smart breakthrough idea, but had not gotten to the point where they had created the product or, or maybe had the product, but didn't have the branding. So we wanted to figure out a way to support those organizations that were really early. So that's where the idea of the incubator bootcamp came out. Not only would they be able to be part of our main mentor program, they're gonna get some specialized attention early on from CMAB and Venture Fuel on how are they positioning themselves, packaging, testing, all those types of things. So really trying to help them from that really early incubation level become successful. And that, of course, plugs into our overall mentorship program, which has become, you know, I don't want to say famous, but it's, uh, you know, it's really helping these companies that are just starting out expand and market. And one of the things when we asked all the past 24 companies that we've accelerated together, what is your biggest challenge post-program? They said, you know, we really want to raise money and expand in retail. And so we also implemented an investor and retail buyer day that'll just be for investors and those, you know, grocery uh, and other buyers to come in and get a sort of sneak peek of the finalists to both accelerate capital, but also uh, to get them on shelf. And that's always been a, an effort that CMAB and, and Venture Fuel together have done. Now we're really making it a focus of, of can we really, truly accelerate the commercialization at the end of the program. The pandemic obviously changed the logistics last time around. Will your approach be the same as last year or are there things that you're going to be doing differently having learned anything from the previous one? In a lot of ways, the, the pandemic forced us to make some quick changes and go virtual. And that had a lot of 
positive benefits. Uh, we were able to bring in companies from all around the world. We were able to bring in mentors from all around the world. They didn't have to fly in for in-person sessions. And we were able to share the semifinals and finals online. We were able to expose California Dairy to so many more people. Uh, so all that was very positive. And I, I think we're going to you know, build on that moving forward. You know, obviously everything in terms of in-person is so fluid right now. So we're going to do what's safe first. But John and I 100% agree at the energy when we did the first year in person. Uh, I mean, you could taste it. It was so exciting to get founders and farmers and the CMAB community all together in a room and sort of celebrate what's next. So we hope to have some sort of in-person as well as virtual elements, but we'll, we'll see how things unfold. It's, you know, it's a great event for the dairy community. You know, when we first did this, we had no idea how big it was going to get or if we would even get, you know, any applicants. And it grew and grew. And the first year, as Fred said, even among the dairy farmers, there was an excitement and a sense of optimism that came out of all these new ideas that was so vital to the just the energy of the industry for the farmers themselves to see it and then to see the ideas actually come to fruition and get into market and we've been fortunate last year in particular there have been a, a number of products that are still you know working their way into the marketplace and growing and expanding and again for the dairy farmers they love to see that you kind of touched on it a little bit before when you were talking about health and wellness. I wonder, is there more of an increased focus now in potential dairy products for immunity, health and wellness, that kind of thing? Sure. When you think of performance and recovery, the recovery side of it is about rejuvenation, relaxation, sleep, even gut health. So there's a, there's a lot of new areas for us to explore. And some real value in terms of the protein and the nutrients from milk uh, that can help deliver against some of those uh, functional benefits. And I think there's also the aspect of aging because aging people are needing to be fitter than ever before and more exercise. So there's still a recovery aspect to aging. And yet the require the body requirements are very different for a 70-year-old and a seven-year-old. So it also opens up that spectrum of the uh, the age products. Yeah, I think people now are thinking instead of their lifespan, they're thinking of their health span, right? Like how can you maintain optimum health? And recovery has become a big part of the sort of science behind that, sleeping better and, and giving yourself time. And obviously gut health is as big a trend as you can think of one right now. And so I think there's so much here in terms of ways the startup founders can take this uh, in terms of products that add to, uh, I'll call it human optimization. But I, I think the pandemic certainly awakened all of us to fragility of life and, and wanting to live our best life and find the products that can help us do that. And so with that in mind, what are you really looking for in terms of the criteria for entries this year? I think John summed it up pretty well. On one side, it's performance, and that is anything from exercise and strength, uh, which I think people would immediately jump to, but also you know, focus, other ways to 
be optimized. And then the other side is recovery. So it can be sleep, relaxation, health, anything that is rejuvenating. The sort of rules, the requirements of this, uh, we, we want to keep it very open. So we want entrepreneurs to be creative in what they submit. We just ask that the product be pre-revenue or early revenue, which uh, we define as under a million dollars in domestic sales. And then we want to make sure that milk dairy is at least 50% of the formula. After all, this is for the, the whole purpose of this is to drive demand of California dairy. Um, so we want to make sure the ingredients are from California and that the dairy is the predominant ingredient within there. And the last time it had to be California milk that was used, is that still the case this time? Yeah, 100%. So we, we know maybe when you apply, you, you might have been using milk elsewhere to begin with. Uh, but the idea is that if you end up winning, that you would move production to California as well as committing to using 100% California dairy. What are the overall benefits for those entering the contest in the short and long term? I have to say, it's funny, like people glom onto the dollar that gets on there. And we'll talk about that. But really, to me, that and what we've heard from all the founders that have gone through is that the process itself uh, has tremendous value. Um, our mentorship program includes CMOs, some of the biggest food and beverage companies out there, to uh, CEOs of other startups to show them how it's done, to packaging experts, to nutritionists, right? We're trying to give them whatever gaps they have in their business, we're trying to fill those. But in terms of the sort of specifics of this, 12 companies will receive a stipend, the value of which is 10000 each, and then as well as some group prizing. Uh, so we get together and sort of will help them create commercials and things like that which will be covered by this group stipend. And then there's two main prizes. First place receives 150,000 uh, in marketing support from CMAB. And second place receives $100,000 worth of marketing support. Those prizes go directly to marketing these startups that, that win first and second. So the idea is this is about commercialization. We're gonna give you all the mentoring, all the background to get ready, uh, and then the actual connections and tools and, and marketing spend to get you on shelf and to drive sales and get you going. And Jim, I might add, we've gotten a lot of great comments back from the, the founders, and, and I, I'd like to read one for you because I think it really gets at that question about what is the value that we bring to them. and. This is from uh, one of the entrants last year, Wonder, which is a keto cheesecake, and it was absolutely delicious. But they said, when we joined the Snack Accelerator, we had nothing but an idea. Now we've shared the delight of our cheesecakes with thousands of happy customers in all 50 states. And they go on to say, we couldn't have achieved what we did without the support, mentorship, initial seed funding from the folks at CMAB. So I think that kind of says it all in terms of what they're getting out of the program. I'd love that example. And John and I have, have laughed about this a few times now that, you know, when Wonder first applied, their product was a Brazilian cheese bread. <laughs> uh, and, you know, over through the course of this, uh, you know, they, they refocused on the, the keto cheesecake. Uh, and it's just a you know, beautiful packaging. It's direct to consumer and now moving into retail. Uh, and it, it capitalized on, you know, no sugar added and keto, and it, it is truly delicious. So we'd love to hear that quote. And also just to kind of think through everything that happened on the back end with them is uh, is something we're all very proud of. 
And now that you've got some kind of history with some of the companies that have been through this program, do you still, obviously, once they're done, I assume you don't just cut them off and never speak to them again. How have you been able to foster an ongoing relationship with them? Well, even beyond the prize money, we offer our assistance however we can provide it to these fledgling companies. We have a business development team that can help them with retail promotions, that can help them with contacts, different accounts, help educate them in e-commerce. You know, so whatever we can do, we're all about their success. So we're putting everything we can against their efforts. Yeah, it's truly cool to see. I mean, CMAB is so supportive of these early companies uh, and on their their pathway to growth. Of course, Venture Fuel is using every connection we can as well. But I think we get to know them all so well as part of this mentorship program that you really become invested in their success. Uh, and uh, Sach Foods was one of the the finalists in the past Snack Accelerator, uh, and they were just written up in the New York Times and Fast Company. You know, it's cool to see them from the earliest stages and know that you help them get in front of the right people and position themselves. And now when they start to see success, you know, it, you get to live vicariously through that as well. So we help all of the companies, uh, no matter what stage they get to in the program, we want to be here for them because at the end of the day, their success drives demand for California dairy, which is the whole reason for doing this. But it, it is nice that you're able to follow them. I mean, did you follow some of the ones that didn't make it as well and see how they're making out? It's really interesting. I mean, there are some that have they pivoted. The product they began with, just the same way we talked about with Wonder and the cheesecake, they needed to tweak a few things. They needed to make some changes. So several, I mean, a, a good handful of these companies are still very much, the founders are very much dedicated to the success of the business but they are reformulating or repositioning where they are. So I would say a vast, a vast percentage of these are still very much on the path to market. There are certainly some that have seen other opportunities and, and have gone in a different direction, of course, wish them well. But I mean, I would say 90% are still working on something related to this field. So it's, it's really a a positive momentum and you know some of them it might take them a little longer to make a splash and their splash might be a little different than they first intended but uh they're, they're all still you know dedicated to this at least you're giving them tools that they might not have known that they needed initially we had, we had one company from the first year who reapplied the second year with this different product uh, and made it in again she's fantastic a really really bright founder i've not seen if she's applied yet this year but you know somebody very involved in the dairy industry really passionate about it and trying to come up with a really disruptive new idea that doesn't always work on the first swing and so you know our job we believe is to give her the tools to get it to the place where it will be that breakout hit and to support her as she goes on the journey of figuring out exactly what that is and what's the timeline for the contest from how you apply, when you apply to the different stages and the eventual winner? Yeah, so the applications are open now. So anyone that has an idea for a dairy-based product that can help with performance or recovery, you can go to realcamilkaccelerator.com and apply. That'll be open till June 25th. And after that, we, we go through and we'll, we'll select the 12 
uh, semifinalists as well as the at least three companies for the the boot camp, the incubator boot camp that takes place in August. And then our semifinals are in uh, end of October, uh, the 26th and 27th. And then the the grand final event will be uh, November 18th, so uh, a week before Thanksgiving. And that is quite a show. As I believe you know, Jim, it's very Shark Tank like. We have celebrity judges. We get the crowds involved. Uh, all the founders are pitching. It's it's really a, a very dynamic experience. And that's it for another packed program. Next week's is already taking shape, and I'm doing a couple of interviews for that this afternoon. As I mentioned, it's another holiday here in the UK on Monday, but I'll be publishing anyway, which can be a bit of a challenge when there's no school. Incredibly, here in Scotland, in spite of all the lost school days, there are no plans to extend the school year by even as much as a week, so there are just four weeks left of school to go this year. Our son already skipped a year when we moved to Scotland, and now he's pretty much lost another year. So at this rate, he'll be retired before he finishes school. Only without a pension. I'm just hoping that by the time the summer vacation does come around, that it is actually summer. I think I heard somewhere this week that it's been the first May in more than a decade where nowhere in Scotland has had a day over 20 degrees or 68 Fahrenheit. Oh well, on the bright side the forecast for the weekend is good so that means planning another hike somewhere. Which seems like a good thing to go and do right now while I grab some lunch and prepare for those interviews. So until next time wherever in the world you may be, I hope that you have a great week, take care, stay safe, join us again next time and... As always, thanks for listening.